Okay, please open your Bibles to Acts the Apostles. And uh, we finished last week in Acts chapter 17. And keep your hand in Acts chapter 17. But before we get into Acts 17, go to Acts chapter 2. And the reason I want you to go to Acts chapter 2 is because I was speaking to a brother on the street a few days ago who came up to us and he was speaking to Patrick for a while. Then he came over to me and he asked me about my thoughts on Acts chapter 2 concerning verse 34. And I read it to you. The scripture says, For David has not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. And this brother said to me, How do you handle this piece of scripture, James? Because I am concerned that those that hold to soul sleep like to use a scripture to show that when we die we sleep. And I said to him, Well, first of all, the body sleep, not the soul. And secondly, Peter is speaking about David not yet ascending into the heavens. Because as far as Peter was concerned, up until this point in the word of God, David was still in the ground. Now we know that everybody that died pre the death of the Lord went into the ground, saved and unsaved. And we call that hell, Luke 16, or as the modern Bibles call it, Hades. And he seemed a bit concerned that he couldn't explain the scripture to somebody who holds to soul sleep. So I said, well, this is what we call progressive revelation. Because Peter is speaking to the Jews. This is the day of Pentecost. And he will say in verse 38, how you would need to repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the mission of sins, so on and so forth. And I said to this brother, but we don't believe that today, do we? We don't teach sinners to be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. And he looked somewhat surprised. And I said to him, we teach people to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, correct? And I said to him, you have to understand that the Jews up to this point of time were being dealt with as a nation. Whereas when we preach to people in the streets today, we are preaching to people as individuals. And I said to him, I take a look at Acts chapter 2 and get back to him. Well, when I look at Acts 2, 34, it says one more time, For David has not ascended into the heavens. And that's true as far as Peter was concerned up until this point in time, around 30 AD. But he saith himself, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Very much in reference to the millennium. So, if you understand one thing about Acts of the Apostles, is that Peter was simply preaching what revelation he had at that point of time. But later on, you would read in, I think it's Ephesians 4 and Colossians 2, and also 1 Peter 3, how Christ went into the ground and set captivity captive. But, of course, Peter didn't know that at this time in the early church. All he knew was that David hadn't yet ascended into the heavens. So if you are dealing with people that hold to soul sleep, just keep this in mind that Acts 2 was just for the Jews around 30 AD. In other words, Peter simply explaining what he knew at that time to the Jews. And also the body sleeps, not the soul. In fact, you were told in Revelation chapter 6 that the martyrs in the tribulation that are killed by the Antichrist, which are beheaded, are in heaven and they are crying out to the lord for judgment they're not sleeping they're not in purgatory because there is no purgatory paul told you to be absent from the body was to be present with the lord so just one last time acts 2 i guess uh 25 going down to 35 is simply speaking about david as far as peter was concerned in 30 a.d was still in the ground david hadn't yet ascended into the heavens and yet later on paul would tell you as would Peter, probably around 60 AD or thereabouts, that 
In fact, David was in the heavens. He had been taken to be with the Lord. His body would still be sleeping, but his spirit, his soul, would be with the Lord Jesus Christ in heaven. So keep that thought in mind, if you will. Now go back to Acts chapter 17, 23. Paul speaking, many years later. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription. To the unknown God, whom therefore you eagerly worship, him to come unto you. Now, I made the case last week, and I've been thinking about this over the last seven days, that Paul is being diplomatic, I think, because he would tell you in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 that there are gods and there are lords, lowercase g, of course, lowercase r. And he says that such deities or such entities are devils, Satan. So Paul would make it clear to the Gentiles in 1 Corinthians 8 and vicariously to you and I that the world worship the devil in different ways, of course. Whereas when he gets up to Areopagus 19, their high court in Athens, he slightly is careful in what he says. And he goes and say, whom therefore ye ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. Now, if you were to take this to be literal for today, in other words, if you were to take this verse today and say to a Muslim, for example... Although you worship Allah, in reality you're worshipping Jehovah, you'd have all sorts of problems. Because we know that that's not the case. But when Paul arrives in Athens, he says this group of people that they are worshipping the one true God in ignorance. Now this opens up all sorts of problems. Because somebody who's in the ecumenical movement will come along and say, well Allah must be the one true God. Or some of the deities in Hinduism could be uh, mirrors of the one true God. Or those in the New Age movement. And this is the problem, I think, when we read the Word of God. And this goes back to progressive revelation. But I don't want to be too hard on Paul. It's like Peter. Peter gets slammed, along with the other apostles, in Acts chapter 1, concerning the replacement of Judas. And I've heard people lament and uh, pretty much take Peter apart for calling a church conference, not council, but a conference to replace him. And some people say, you know, Peter took it upon himself to replace Judas with Matthias and so forth. Well, I'm not sure, you know, I want to be so critical of Peter. But the apostles were growing at different rates. The, the apostles were given revelation, as I say, from the Lord in different ways. Peter would tell the Jews to repent and be baptized for mission of sins. We don't preach that today. So when Paul says to the unknown God, him to come unto you, be careful. It is possible that behind the scenes the Lord is working on the hearts of the recipients to receive the gospel. But I'm still somewhat puzzled as to what Paul is doing. And he goes on saying 24, 25, 26, 27, how men worship him, and, and yet God doesn't need him to do anything for him. But what really grabbed me last week is 27, that they should seek the Lord. Emphasis on the recipients. If happily they might feel after him and find him, though he be not far from every one of us. So therefore it's possible for you and I to be saved. It's possible for your Muslim friends and your Jewish friends and your Catholic friends to be saved. And yet Calvinists, as you know, teach that you can't come to him unless he draws you. And they totally ignore the fact that he's drawn all men unto himself. But we ended last week in verse 29, and I'll read it again, and then we'll start today's broadcast, if we may. For as much then as we are the offspring of God... We ought not to think that the Godhead is like under gold or silver or stone, graven by art, a man's device. You can't paint the Lord. You can't depict the Lord. And if you try to do so, it's going to be totally in vain. And I know people say, well, I went to heaven and back. I've been to hell and back. I saw this. I saw that. And they give a great description. 
as to what they have seen, but you were told also from Paul that eye hasn't seen, ear hasn't heard what the Lord has prepared for those that love him. Many times these people are simply deluding themselves. On top of that, man can't uh, create God, man can't deplict him and say this is the one true God. Now the Jews did that back in the Old Testament. There's an occasion where they asked Aaron to create an idol. And he said, this is the gods, or this is the God that went before you. And he offers that idol as being the one true God. Dangerous stuff. But let's start today's broadcast, if we may, from Acts 17, verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at. But now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because he hath appointed a day in the which he would judge the world in righteousness. By that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. God commands all men everywhere, verse 30, to repent. All men being all men. Repent, change your mind, turn from unbelief to belief, be sorry for who you are and what you are. And yet most people think that repentance means to stop doing something in order to be received. In other words, stop sinning in order to be saved. If only it was that simple. I'm currently reading John Brown's Bible. And it was written back in the 18th century. And it was very kindly donated to us about six months ago or so. By an old woman who's had it in her family for 300 years. And yes, 300 years is what she told us. And the footnotes are incredible. The Old Testament is just amazing. It must have taken him probably 30, 40 years to compile his reference Bible. And I spent about an hour and a half, two days ago, three days ago, reading his commentary on First John. And I was somewhat perplexed when he spoke about the text which says, He that is born again doesn't sin. And I thought to myself, how are you going to deal with that piece of scripture? And he says, if you are a Christian, or if you are offering yourself as a Christian, and you sin regularly, you're not saved. And I thought, typical of a Calvinist. Yes, he was reformed. And yet not all Calvinists hold to such a view. And he would say that repentance would mean to turn from all of your sins, and I mean all of your sins, in order to be saved. And yet that is impossible, because you were born in sin. On top of that, a lot of these Calvinists speak about the big sins, like adultery, or lust, or anger, or manslaughter, or murder. But how about gluttony? How about bulimia? How about... Bitterness. They're all sins. You were told if you broke one part of the law, you broke all parts of the law. And I'm sometimes puzzled as to why these Calvinists pick and choose which parts of scripture they wish to zoom in on, or which part of sin they wish to preach on, whereas they completely avoid other parts. How about excessive wealth? When was the last time you heard somebody preach about excessive wealth? Some people are animal lovers, and they spend more money on their animals than they do on missions. You see, this is how... The word of God is laid out. If you're going to be a Bible teacher, you need to preach in all sins, not just some. But it says in 30, and the times of this ignorance, probably in reference to 22 down to 28, God winked at, he overlooked. And yet, that doesn't mean those people died and went to heaven, which is what the ecumenical church would teach. Those people that died before Christ are going to be judged at the great white throne judgments. And they'll be judged on what they knew. They'll be judged on what revelation God gave them. We ought not to think that the Godhead is like under gold or silver or stone. Ties in with verse 30. 
God overlooks the ignorance. He overlooks their superstitious worship. But now commands all men and women everywhere, without exception, to repent. Why? Because he hath appointed a day in the which he would judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men in that he hath raised him from the dead. And I read this last week. I thought to myself, I wonder if verse 31 is speaking about Calvary. Because the world, those that received Christ, were judged at Calvary. Christ says on the cross, My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? Into the hands I commend my spirit. And he goes back to heaven. So a judgment has taken place, 30 AD. And yet most Bible teachers will say that this mention of judgment in 31 is speaking about the great white throne judgment. But yet ask yourself this, does Paul know that? You see, Paul wasn't shown the great white throne judgment. John was. Paul wasn't shown the false prophet. John was. Now, Paul was shown the Antichrist, as was John. And Paul was shown the church age, whereas the Old Testament prophets were not. Paul was shown the rapture. Peter wasn't. So go back to Acts 2. Peter says, David has not yet ascended into the heavens. Well, he had actually done, but of course, Peter didn't know that. Whereas Paul would be shown more revelation. Because he had appointed a day in the which he would judge the world in righteousness by that man whom he hath ordained. It's Christ, of course, whereof he hath given assurance unto all men, in that he hath raised him from the dead. That's a historical fact. But I just wonder, could we take 31 and apply it to 30 AD, Calvary? Because the whole of the world's sins were imputed to Christ, 30 AD. And I mean the entire world, even the devil's sins, and yet that doesn't mean the devil's going to be saved. Of course not. He's going to be damned. On top of that, it doesn't mean that the world's going to be saved. They're going to be damned as well unless they repent. That's the whole point of 30 and 31. But I'm just thinking to myself, could we say that 30 and 31 is speaking about 30 AD, Calvary? The world was judged on the cross. Judgment took place on the cross. Imputation took place on the cross. And that's why it says to be reconciled to God. Hold that thought. 32. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead... Some mocked, and others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. Seeds have been planted. He's preached to them, and he's done what he could with the light that he had been given at this point in time. Some mocked, others said, We will hear thee again of this matter. And if you go back to Greek mythology, if you go back to antiquity, there was talk about gods coming to earth, dying, and being resurrected, so on and so forth. And sometimes Christians get this thrown in their face when they street preach by so-called town atheists. And they say something along the lines of that Christianity is a reinvention of Greek mythology. I think Zeus is mentioned as being one of the deities, born a virgin, was crucified or was put to death. There's no crucifixion, of course, back in the Old Testament times. The Assyrians would put you on a tree, but they wouldn't crucify like the Romans did. And he'd be raised from the dead. If that were the case... You would have thought that the crowd in 18, the Epicureans and Stoics, would have gone straight to the heart of the matter and said, Hey Paul, you're preaching something we already know. But they don't say that. In fact, it says in 18, He seemeth to be a set of forth of strange gods, because he preached unto them Jesus in the resurrection. They hadn't heard this before. May we know what this new doctrine, 19, whereof thou speakest is. This was new to their ears. So I don't think we need to worry about this nonsense about Greek mythology and gods becoming men, dying for mankind. And being resurrected later on, I don't believe that's the case at all. I think a lot of those mythological accounts are hoaxes. And I've even heard that some of those accounts are written after Christ. And yet are used to attack Christianity. 
We will hear thee again of this matter. So the door's not completely shut on Paul from 32, 33. So Paul departed from Malnaim. There's more fish in the sea. Don't cast your pearls before swine. And sometimes people say, well, when do you give up? You've got an unsaved mother, an unsaved father. You've got an unsaved husband. You've got an unsaved wife. You've got an unsaved daughter. You've got an unsaved son. When do you give up? Well, you should know in your heart if you are saved when it's time to move on. And normally when you witness to an unsaved loved one, the eyes glaze over. And when they glaze over, it's time to button it. Because the more you preach to an unsaved person, the more judgment you heap upon them. It's a fine line. I know it is. You want to win your friends and family to the Lord. But if you keep talking, if you keep witnessing to them, you can do more harm than good. So Paul departed from among them. I don't want to read too much into that text. But I do think that as far as he was concerned, he had planted seeds, 32, and it was time to push on. 34, howbeit certain men clave unto him and believed, among the which was Dionysus, the Aracopites, and a woman named Amarius, and others with them. They believed. That's how you get saved. It's as simple as that. You just believe. And yet people make such a song and dance about salvation. And it breaks my heart that most of the street preachers that I know around the world, and I know some of these men personally, preach a faith and works package. And they preach you have to repent of all of your sins in order to be saved. And if you don't live it, if you don't live holy, you lose your salvation. And most of the street preachers that I know preach that message. And yet you were told you were saved by faith, and you were told you were sealed unto the day of redemption. But... It says, certain men clave unto him and believed. Wonderful. Among the which was Dionysus, the Erechopite, and a woman named Amaris and others with them. He doesn't say to this crowd of people, turn from your sins. He doesn't say, join a local church. He doesn't say, start tithing. He doesn't say, get baptized either, interestingly. On top of that, there's no speaking in tongues. They believed. They clung to him. They drew next to him or walked alongside him. They became part of his in a circle, and it says, and others with them, a group that wanted to be saved from their sins. So 34 verses from Acts of the Apostles, chapter 17. And I'll just wrap this message up because I think over the last three weeks we covered much ground and sometimes it's a little rush to squeeze as much in as I can during a 30-minute broadcast. But what caught my attention from 17, verse 3, opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, substitutionary atonement, and that this Jesus, whom I preach unto you, is Christ. He preached Jesus, not religion. This Jesus, Jehovah saves, whom I preach unto you, is Christ, the Messiah. But it goes on to say in verse 5, how the Jews which believe not, moved with envy, took unto them certain lewd fellows of the baser sort, the riffraff of the local community, and gathered a company and set all the city on an uproar, like a riot, and assaulted the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. If they could, they would have killed them. And this shows the religious zeal amongst those that are not yet saved. Paul be the same. Paul saw the death of Stephen. Paul witnessed the death of Stephen. Paul instigated the death of Stephen, and yet he was saved nevertheless. But 11, it says, these are more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. 
One door closes on him, like 33, and another door opens. And this crowd in Thessalonica were more noble, more open-minded, and they searched the scriptures daily, something we should be doing, whether those things were so. And Paul says, check out what I'm saying, scripture with scripture, don't have a word for it, check everything out from scripture, and it goes on to say how Paul arrived in Athens, 16, and his spirit was stirred within him. You can't be passive indefinitely if you are a saved person. Eventually you will need to speak out like Jeremiah did. And he goes on to say how the Epicureans and Stoics, 18, were intrigued by Paul. And they took him, 19, and brought him unto Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is. They take him, they detain him, and off he goes up to their high court to give an account of the gospel. And I made the comment last week that you would have thought that Paul would have gone there on his own accord. But he was taken by this group of people. I won't use the term mob, but he was detained. And he gets up in Mars Hill, 22. You men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. For as I passed by and beheld your devotions, I found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God, whom therefore you ignorantly worship, him declare I unto you. And I was puzzled by that last week, and I'm still puzzled now, because until you're born again, you're outside of the will of God. Until you are saved, you are lost. In fact, before you were saved, you were dead in your sins. You couldn't even tie your shoelaces up in the sense of doing something that would be honouring to the Lord. You were completely dead. And yet he says, this God that you worship in ignorance, him declare unto you. And I think Paul is being diplomatic. And yet, as I said at the beginning of this message, he would tell you in 1 Corinthians 8 that there are many gods and lords, so on and so forth. But to us is one true God, one true Lord. And he builds on this pagan superstitious worship, 24, 25, 26, building on the fact that God doesn't need you to do anything for him. And if you do anything for him, that's simply down to his own good pleasure. 30 and the times of this ignorance, God winked at. He'll overlook it. He will be merciful to the merciful, so on and so forth. But now commands all men everywhere to repent. Change your mind. Be sorry for who you are and what you are. Come to the cross to be saved. And yet this is still, I think, progressive revelation. One more time, Peter wasn't aware in Acts 2 that David was in the heavens. Paul at this point in time, may not have been aware of the great white throne judgment, whereas John will be shown that later on in the book of Revelation, because he had appointed a day in which he would judge the world in righteousness. I think that's partly pictured back in 30 AD, when the Lord hung on the cross by that man whom he hath ordained, whereof he hath given him assurance in that he hath raised him from the dead, completely victorious over death, and therefore death cannot be held against us. And yet the response from his audience is the same as today. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. And others said, we will hear thee again of this matter. So one group mock him. Another group are quite happy to hear him again of this matter. And off he goes, not wanting to, judge, not wanting to add judgment to judgment, not wanting to add further condemnation to their already state of condemnation. But it says, 34... How certain men clave unto him and believed. So the seed has come to fruition very quickly. Among the which was Dionysus, the Erechopite, and a woman named Amaris, and others with them. So you can't win them all, as they say. But 
What you got here is a call to repentance. No, stay as you are. No, do your own thing. No, Paul told them they were superstitious. And he built on their ungodly worship. And he called them to repent. And that is still relevant to us today. But I still think that the apostles were working at their own rates, in their own different ways. And some had more light than others. And maybe during a future Bible study, I will spend more time discussing that. But there you are. Acts 17, 34 verses. I'll pick it up next week in Acts chapter 18.